The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. King understood that the black athlete, its its main role, right? Post World War II, the way America presented it was for for the black athlete to be excellent, to be an example of integration, and that's where King was for most of the time. Uh, but once we get to the mid '60s and that transition from Clay to Ali, and once we're starting to get into the revolt of the black athlete, King's position changes too. That is to say, that it doesn't the athlete doesn't just have to be a symbol of integration; he could be much more. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to the large professor himself, Lou Moore, about Dr. Martin Luther King and sports and how these two institutions collided after King's assassination in 1968. Also, I've got some choice words very connected to the interview about why Donald Trump and Mike Pence do not need to have Dr. King's name in their mouth, particularly after how they treated NFL protesting players in the last season. And I've got some Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. So the Just Stand Up award is something that's very, very close uh, to my heart and I think to your hearts as well. I mean, it's something that moved me to tears. I've also got Colin Kaepernick watch and so much more. But first, let's speak to the large professor himself, Lou Moore. And now, as promised, we have professor of history from Grand Valley State University, the author of We Will Win the Day, The Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete, and The Quest for Equality, and a book that I recommend greatly, I Fight for a Living, Boxing and the Battle for Black Manhood, 1880 to 1915. Again, I cannot recommend that book enough. We have him right here, the large professor himself, Lewis Moore. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, I wanted to speak to you very specifically about Dr. King and this article that you wrote for the Civil Rights Museum um, about Dr. King and his connection to sports. I mean, first and foremost, I was hoping maybe you could talk to us about Dr. King's relationship to sports in the big picture. How would you describe that? 
No, I think on the one hand, I think it's important, right? And especially for his love for baseball, I was just going over some um, articles today. One of them was in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and it was talking – it's right after, you know, his assassination. It was talking about his love for Roberto Clemente, and it got me thinking that King's love for Clemente and King's love for baseball is important to understanding – uh, how he sees sports and the civil rights movement, right? Because, you know, someone like Jackie Robinsons, who's this great figure, um, presented this idea that democracy and meritocracy can happen. So it's one of the first great examples America has, right, of this, and King understands that. And also being from Atlanta, um, 1948, it was a huge deal when the Dodgers came to town, right, um, as the spring training in Atlanta. So here's this guy who's from Atlanta. Dodgers are coming down with Jackie and Campanella, I believe Newcomb's there too, and and the KKK tried to stop the game, uh, but it went on, right? And it's showing the power that sports have. The other thing, though, when we think about King and baseball, is the reality that integration takes a long time. So you might get Jackie in '47, but it takes till '59, right, for the Boston Red Sox to to fully integrate, and it takes until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 for for Southern teams and the like, spring training and during the season to to fully integrate. And arguably so until. And arguably until the 1970s before you see the end of quotas on major league teams. Right, right. And and the lack, I mean, so King doesn't see that and he doesn't even see a, a black manager. So someone like a, a Hank Aaron, who's who's in the Braves post mid-60s when he's there, um, you know, Hank is talking about, you know, he'd like to be manager one day. Um, so this idea of, of upward mobility within sports, too, is, is a big deal. Mm. Now, I thought one of the interesting things about your article, uh, which we will post along with this podcast, is you spoke about how Dr. King's relationship to sports that you see changes throughout the 1960s. And of course, the 1960s, it still boggles my mind as someone who did not live through the 60s, how you can have 1960 and 1968 take place in the same year. I mean, in the same decade, excuse me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's just that that's so so much tumultuous change in such a short period of time. So many accepted assumptions turned on their head um, in a matter of a few short years. How did Dr. King's relationship with sports change throughout the 1960s? Yeah, um, and I think that's the brilliance of King, right? Understanding that he can change and he did change, and we could see that through sports. So I start that piece off talking about Hank Aaron in Atlanta, right? And King understood that the black athlete, its its main role, right, post-World War II, the way America presented it was for, for the black athlete to be excellent, to be an example of integration. And that's where King was for most of the time. Uh, but once we get to the mid-60s and that transition from Clay to Ali, and once we're starting to get into the revolt of the black athlete, King's position changes too. That is to say that it doesn't, the athlete doesn't just have to be a symbol of integration. He could be much more. And what I tried to argue is that Ali helps him get there, right? That fight against Vietnam, like almost a year before King comes out against Vietnam, helps King see that black athletes can shift, right? How we think about politics in America. And then as you brilliantly point out in your John Carlos book, right? Just sitting down with guys like Carlos and Edwards, right? And then coming to support them for the uh, Olympic boycott lets King see that athletes don't necessarily have to play to make an impact, right? They can use their power and their platform to, to say something or to say, look, we, we're not playing, right? We're going to take ourselves out of this to show you that despite the fact that we are successful, a lot of black Americans have been left behind. 
So another way to put that would be that in the 60s, he goes from seeing the black athlete as being a representative or symbolic force in the fight for civil rights to being people who can be active participants and outspoken advocates in the black freedom struggle. Right. Um, that's that's exactly right. And I think, too, you know, working with Jackie Robinson all those years helps him see that, even though Jackie's past his prime athletic prime, right? What he does for the movement um, really pushes King, too. Right. As you write about, he goes on this defense of Jackie Robinson because, and this is something that uh, boggled my mind when I read this in Arnold uh, Rampersad's book about Jackie Robinson, but this idea that people in the movement even adopted a bit of a shut up and play attitude towards Jackie Robinson. Like, why are we giving this person this kind of uh, platform, given that he was, quote unquote, just an athlete? And that really precipitated King's famous line about him being a sit-inner before sit-ins and a freedom rider before freedom rides, basically saying, put some respect on his name. This is Jackie Robinson. Right, right. Jackie, and, and it and also exemplifies, you know, nonviolence, right? That Jackie had that courage, and, and we saw Jackie had that courage in real time, uh, just like we saw the young kids as, as sit-inners and, and freedom riders. And I think the other thing when you bring that up is is that shut up and play from, from athletes, right? Uh, to, to connect us all together is 1963 when, when Jackie Robinson and Floyd Patterson go to Birmingham, right, in support of King. And then there's Jesse Owens who, who comes after them, right, who, who calls them outside agitators. And Jackie claps back and says, look, I'm not free until all my people are free. Mm. Powerful moment from two people of, uh, of the previous generation. Now, you spoke about how the microcosm of all this is his connection to Muhammad Ali uh, in the 1960s. I was wondering if you could speak about this because Dr. King adopted a bit of a shut-up-and-play attitude towards Ali early on in the 60s. I think that might surprise some people. Right. So when, when you know, when Ali comes out as, well, you know, Clay comes out as Ali, yes. I think he threw a lot of people off. Right. And and so, you know, King's not alone in this. Um, but what he's worried about is is not only the optics, but the rhetoric of the nation of Islam. And, and he's kind of behind on those times. Right. Thinking that that type of rhetoric will push back the movement because civil rights legislation is, is, is going through Congress. And actually, there are congressmen talking about. You know, here you have the heavyweight champion of the world as a nation of Islam. Should we even you know, put forth this, leg- this legislation? And so I think King gets wrapped up in that. And, and you see that again a couple years later when, you know, when he hears the words black power for the first time with Stokely Carmichael. He, it, it takes some time, right, to understand what Ali is doing and also what Carmichael is doing. But when he understands it, right, he, he articulates, you know, his vision of this, right? He articulates his vision of black power. And then he also sees what Ali's doing, you know, coming out against the Vietnam War, that courage that it takes to do that and why he does that. And this is one of those things that I think it's tough for us to comprehend today uh, is that we're talking about a Martin Luther King at this point who's 34 years old. And yet by the contours of the movement at that moment is seen as being from a previous generation of fighters. And right, so it, uh, uh, which is wild to conceptualize, but as seen as somebody who is of the past and the freedom riders and the the sit-iners, they were of the present. People joining the Nation of Islam, Ali, they were of the present, and so I, I do think it's to King's credit, and also it's something that's very, should I think sound very familiar to people that when you're not of that generation, it takes you a moment to catch up with what it is they're trying to say. 
Right, and I think your your Jim Brown book does a good job. Uh, you know, shameless plug there. Well, this but, is the first uh, time I've that. even heard your thoughts about it. You you read the Jim Brown book? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm I stop. I'm at the Hollywood. Are you, are you digging on um, it? So I, I went. No, it's really good. I, I like it, and and it's really all the stuff that's going on that previous chapter about you know Jim Brown and, and and Black Power and Green Power, and then trying to understand the civil rights movement, and really Jim Brown setting himself up as an individual is really interesting. And he, you know, you have those for those listeners out there, you have those takes on on Martin Luther King, right? And Jim Brown is, is saying the same thing you're saying, right? That that King is is old, right? And here he is, is only mid thirties at this time, and. And and in real time, these people are having to come to terms with the, the great figure of Martin Luther King and a transition in a movement, right, from integration to black power. Um, and how do you wrestle with that? I think that's what's so fabulous about studying this time, whether you're doing King, whether you're doing Jackie Robinson, trying to, you know, deal with Ali, you know, coming out for the Vietnam War and then supporting Ali. I think this is this is why this time's uh, my favorite, right, because everybody has to deal with what's the changes that is happening. Um, and if we go fast forward, you know, 50 years later, it's like when Kaepernick kneels, everyone has to deal with that. Um, and this is the same thing you get in the, in the middle of the movement in the 60s. Well, here's a head scratcher for you that connects Jim Brown and um, Dr. Martin Luther King. And I'd love to hear your analysis of this. Like, how do we understand that Jim Brown resolutely set himself up as somebody who opposed the civil rights movement, called the marches parades, uh, said he disagreed with the methods involved, and yet at the, assistant, at the insistence of King's family, he was inside at Dr. King's funeral while U.S. senators were on the outside of the funeral, not allowed in, or there weren't seats for them, yet there was a seat for Jim Brown. How do we understand that? Right. I think you make that point uh, strong in your book. It's just the kind of figure that Brown was. Right. Um, despite the fact there's there's differences, they wanted the same thing. Right. They wanted freedom. Now, Jim Brown's take on integration versus segregation is a lot different than King's. But but at the end of the day, they wanted the same thing. But I also think it speaks to something I've been wrestling with and, and haven't had time to get down. But there's really a failure, uh, especially in the sports world. Right. A failure of white leadership um, after King's assassination. And, and the black athlete has to take up the cause. So whether it's Clemente and the Pirates, whether it's, you know, various athletes, you know, Houston Colts, I was reading the other day, going through newspapers, right, having to, you know, walk, you know, talk down uh, protesters or or members of the Browns having to go into Cleveland's community. Um, they have to do this because, you know, white power, the white people in power, especially the sports world, don't do anything. Um, so I think it's important to see some like a Jim Brown there. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this, Lou. Um, was there anything that you learned in writing this terrific article about Dr. King in sports that you did not know before starting your research? Yeah, and it's just, um, and this has been helpful with me, just how he could change and 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 stay balanced at the same time. Um, so going, I think that middle part where I'm talking about Ali, right? That shut up and play to to him actually acknowledging that Ali was correct, and I think that's so instructive for me and for everybody else. This great guy um, that we sometimes want to hold static was changing in real time, and, and I think that's important. So, so let me then follow up with this question. I think I know the answer to this. The cover of the New Yorker magazine uh, had their take on this. It's a question that I think comes naturally. But given where we are right now, 2018, what is Dr. King doing? Let's 
you know, Dr. King would only be would be 89 years old. That's not only 89 years old. Uh, but where would Dr. King be if alive today? What movements would he be aligning with? What forces would he be saying, uh, this is where I stand? What do you think he'd be saying about Colin Kaepernick? What, what, where do you see Dr. King in the current matrix? I mean, in regard to sports, right, um, I think he would be standing or kneeling with Kaepernick um, and, and supporting guys like Bennett, um, but also in the context of sports. And, and this is something similar to what your work does is he would be going after cities and ownership. Right. And, and, and I think that's the next step in understanding King is, is that when we're spending billions of dollars on, on these, you know, these stadiums. Right. I think King would have known that it takes away from the community. Right. It takes away from the the end of war of poverty, which I think he I don't know if he would have seen how how quickly and how sad he would be when when he's, you know, when Reagan essentially, you know, kills it. But all that money being spent on the stadiums. I think the other thing, too, when we talk about sports is uh, athletics and academics and exploitation in college. Um, and when he's assassinated, that's just a couple months before. Sports Illustrated puts out that five part speech or piece, the shameful uh, story of the black athlete. And and I don't I will I think that his eyes would be open to see like, oh, my gosh, this academic exploitation that's going on with these college athletes that 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 article like points out and, and continues to this day. Um, I think he would be appalled. And in the Shadow League, I wrote that there's, there's this piece that they wanted me to look at the Memphis basketball team from 10 years ago. And I walked it back to, to King in Memphis. And I talked about the, the continuous exploitation at Memphis with, with athletics where a lot of these black athletes don't graduate yet people support that team because you know in such a racially divided city the Memphis Tigers always seems to bring the city together and it's like wait a minute you know here we have King and the legacy of King at the same time there's this academic exploitation that's going on with black athletes and I think you'd be appalled well that was one of the I think one of the really tragic things in reading some of the commemorations of the 50th anniversary is how many articles that I saw, and I'm guessing you saw them too, but about how Memphis has never recovered in 50 years. That, you know, so many cities did adopt progressive change after not just King's assassination, but the subsequent uprisings in many cities. Uh, I I live in Washington, D.C., and there were whole blocks of real estate that they said, all right, these now have to go to black-owned businesses. Um, as as a response to the response to King. And in Memphis, it's just like people were like, yeah, it's been a 50-year burial of the city. Uh, in in some respects, obviously, there are people listening to this in Memphis who will be like, wait a minute, my hometown's great. We have the best barbecue, Sun Records, all this stuff. And I'm saying take a step back from that. And if you look at the issues of race and class that informed uh, the last years of King's life, I mean, it's it's not it's not good. Right. No, there, I don't think when I was writing that piece, all that research I did, that's, it came up all the time. You know, this is the city where, where King's assassinated and I don't think they recover from it. And I don't know how you could, um, just because how divided they were at that time. And, and I don't think, you know, once you have that assassination, they don't deal with what divided them. They, you know, a lot of people just point to the riots that happened afterwards and, and never really deal with the structural problems. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And one last question for you, Lou. I think that um, if there are people who are listening to this podcast who don't follow uh, your Twitter account, I mean, that that's on them because they're, they're really <laughs> missing out. It's at LouMore12. That's at LouMore, M-O-O-R-E, and then the number 12. Um, I, I did want to ask you, 
well, the thing that makes your Twitter account different than the typical sports or even sports and politics account is that you post these uh, firsthand documents. Uh, you post like clips from old newspapers, uh, old press clippings uh, that 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 really showcase what it is you're trying to argue about the past. So it's it's this very important use of the media as history. And I wanted to know how you do your research. Like, are you down with the microfilm and the microfiche? Are you going through like old binders with these newspapers? Because it's pretty obvious you're not just doing Google searches or Lexus Nexus. Uh, you're going deep into the crates. How do you go about doing that? Uh, as you said, digging into the crates. Um, I always get microfilm. Uh, and so even if I'm not doing a specific research project, I'm always trying to uh, get stuff, read newspapers. And, and the way it works now is that you can PDF them. And so I have, you know, full things of, of PDF. So right now, currently, I have the Houston Post, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I think I ordered the Memphis Commercial Appeal. What I was trying to do for this moment and then for the Olympics 1968 is just get all the, the post-King opinions in the sports world around the country and then also do that for the um, Olympic protests. But I've got – like what I also try to do is when I do this is get stuff that's online, offline that other people can't get and then share it intentionally. Because um, I think part of my role as a historian is, is to share it. So I got tons of black newspaper sports sections, all PDF from, you know, in between 45 and 68 from when I was uh, writing that book. And then when times needed, I, you know, I share with everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's the sharing that, that, I mean, makes you think for a brief moment that uh, Twitter actually has value. Uh, which I not 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 just sure if I should appreciate that coming from you or if I should <laughs> be like, damn you, large professor. <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah, no, I was gonna say like sometimes I try to use my feet as an extended classroom, um, and I think you know I have access to a lot of things that other people don't have, mm -hmm. right? And and so I try to I'm, I'm conscious of that. No, that's that's real talk. I know when I've done research, getting into those academic crates is <sighs> easier said than done, right? Well, the gentleman's name is Lewis Moore, uh, associate professor of history at Grand Valley State. Please read his books. One is called We Will Win the Day, which I have not read. The, it's okay. <laughs> the, the second one, which I have read, which I absolutely loved, is called I Fight for a Living, Boxing and the Battle for Black Manhood. Cannot recommend that book highly enough. Lou Moore, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. All right. Thank you for having me. And now I've got some choice words about why Donald Trump and Mike Pence have no business speaking about Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, look, there is a uniquely nauseating feeling that overcomes the senses when people bathe themselves in Dr. King's legacy while standing for a set of principles in stark opposition to his life's work. It's like smelling an odor so powerful your head jerks backward in shock. In a bizarre way, it's a tribute to King's enduring greatness that even politicians who would have proudly stood with George Wallace and Bull Connor have to doff their hats to his memory. Yet it doesn't make it any less repugnant when abject racists like Donald Trump and his lickspittle Mike Pence pay their respects in a way that makes you imagine them either laughing or clenching their teeth. Their tweets marking the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, which absolutely positively were not written by anyone else said the following. Donald Trump wrote, Today we honor, or I should say, someone wrote for Donald Trump, 
today we honor Dr. King on the 50th anniversary of his assassination. Earlier this year, I spoke about Dr. King's legacy of justice and peace and his impact on uniting Americans. And then Mike Pence wrote the following, or someone wrote for him. 50 years ago today, Dr. King's life was tragically cut short, but that did not stop his immortal words, his courageous example, and his faith from inspiring generations of Americans. Today we honor the man and the dream. Look, there are too many examples to list for when these two shrunken men trampled on King's work of creating and fighting for a beloved community. Donald Trump in particular who was engaging in housing discrimination against black tenants in 1968 when King was gunned down in Memphis, has no business speaking about King's legacy. It's enough to say, I think, that the very day these tweets were sent, Trump was also braying about sending troops to our southern border to stop a caravan of immigrants, challenging the very inhumane acts of racism which King devoted his life to fighting. But here in the sports corner of the nation, we should remember how Trump and Pence responded to people who were also attempting to walk in King's footsteps. Colin Kaepernick and other NFL players who took a knee during the national anthem in protest of racial inequality and police violence. What these players did was to live King's legacy. It was nonviolent direct action aimed at making the white population confront the gap between the ideals of this country and the lived experience of black Americans. And just as the players were excoriated for speaking out by many people, egged on by a right-wing noise machine, King was also, at the end of his life, deeply unpopular and polarizing because he was standing up against the war in Vietnam as well as criticizing the harm of capitalism. King was relentless against the evil triplets, as he put it, of militarism, racism, and materialism. This earned him enemies, one of whom snatched his life at age 39. The players were not attempting to be martyrs. They were not trying to put themselves in physical harm's way or risk death threats or lose their jobs. They knew that that was a risk, but the goal was to be heard. It was difficult to have this desperately needed debate about police violence, however, over the racist fury of Donald Trump calling the players sons of bitches at a rally in Huntsville, Alabama, and continuing his attacks through January's State of the Union address. I've spoken to players who hired private security to protect their families after Trump's speech and his continual Twitter tantrums. It was ugly as sin, a redirecting of the focus of the protest away from police violence and toward a self-righteous aggression towards the players for having the temerity to speak out at all. That's what Donald Trump does. He distracts and demonizes. And Mike Pence then showed himself to be nothing but his hand puppet when he staged a walkout from an Indianapolis Colts game at the taxpayer's expense to embarrass protesting players. Now, Colin Kaepernick is looking for work, and another kneeling player, his friend and teammate Eric Reed, is on the outside of the league looking in, waiting for the phone to ring. NFL owners who gave Trump millions throughout his campaign and inauguration have cut a deal now with one set of players, giving money to a set of causes, and are punishing the others. They're playing divide and conquer, while also appeasing Trump, who gets to bask in the glory of seeing those punished who attempted to walk in King's path. This is who they are. They should be honest about it. And part of being honest is getting Dr. King's name out of their mouths. It's quite literally the least they could do.
This week's episode of the Edge of Sports podcast is brought to you, as always, by The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. We have a hell of an issue coming out this week. Donna Minkowitz on domestic far-right candidates. Michael Massing on Martin Luther and Trump. Not Martin Luther King. And David Kleon on how progressives should think about Russia. Very important article. We also got books and arts, all sorts of reviews. Please check out The Nation. That's thenation.com slash subscribe. And never forget... That when you support The Nation magazine, you're also supporting the continual existence of this podcast. And now, back to Edge of Sports. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. This week, the Just Stand Up Award goes to Matt Barnes, former NBA player. And he played for a lot of teams in the league. One of them was the Sacramento Kings. He's also from Sacramento. And on Saturday... And this would be two Saturdays ago by the time you're listening to this podcast. He led demonstrators in California's capital in a protest rally over the police killing of Stefan Clark, an unarmed black man who was shot multiple times in the back. Now, Barnes really stood up in doing these protests. He said, it's more than color. It comes down to right and wrong. I've got two nine-year-old boys and I fear for them. How do we explain to our kids because of the color of your skin People aren't going to like you. You have my word being from here, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to be a driving force behind Sacramento making the change. And at this rally, Matt Barnes lifted up Stefan Clark's two infant sons and pledged that he would pay for their college tuitions. Now, I just want to give a lot of credit to Matt Barnes because, you know, throughout his time in the league, people spoke about him often as if he was a knucklehead. Uh, He definitely got involved in some off-court fights now and then. But this was a reminder to me that so often we define these players by what we think about them or what the media tells us about them, but we don't really know them. We don't really know what makes them tick. And this was an example of Matt Barnes actually showing us what makes him tick. So thank you, Matt Barnes. Just Stand Up Award, just for you. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award was the easiest time I've ever had to think of a Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, ever. It goes to Houston Texans owner Bob McNair, also a big money bundler and bumbler uh, for Donald Trump. Bob McNair did an interview with the Wall Street Journal where he talked about the time that he compared protesting NFL players to inmates running the prison. And he said, the main thing I regret is apologizing for that statement. Bob McNair also said that he wished he'd stood up more for Jerry Richardson, the racist, sexist owner of the Carolina Panthers, who was encouraged to sell his team after uh, all sorts of recordings were released that uh, displayed Jerry Richardson in the light that so many people behind the scenes have spoken about over the years um, in terms of who he is. Uh, Bob McNair speaking of who he is, showed us who he is with this statement. Now players know who he is with this statement. I only hope he doesn't apologize for apologizing for the apology. Because honestly, people should know who these people are. They are the money behind the alt-right cabal that has so stained this country. These are NFL players. This is what we're supporting when we go to NFL games. People like Bob McNair. Players should take notice. The union should take notice. You don't call a league that is 70% black. You don't call the players inmates and get no repercussions for that. At least you shouldn't in a sane and just world.
And now a quick word about the Start Making Sense podcast. If you like Edge of Sports, you got to check out Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. Every week, host John Wiener takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk to some really smart people. People like Naomi Klein on climate change or Keith Ellison on a strategy for the Democratic Party. And he's even had me on the show to talk about sports and politics. Catch a new episode of Start Making Sense every Thursday at thenation.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now we've got the part of the show this week that we call Kaepernick Watch, where we talk about the latest with Colin Kaepernick. The main thing I guess I would focus on this week is that the collusion trial went forward in a big way. Uh, Baltimore Ravens general manager Ozzie Newsome was deposed and subpoenaed, as was Baltimore Ravens coach John Harbaugh. They will give an inside look, assumedly, to investigators as to why it looked like they were going to sign Colin Kaepernick and then stepped away from that signing. In a, in a manner that really raised eyebrows. And speaking of raising eyebrows, the Baltimore Ravens signed a backup quarterback this week, and it was Robert Griffin III, who spent last year out of the game. I'm all about RG3 getting another chance. I loved him when he was a rookie in Washington and hated the way that the Shanahans, that would be Mike Shanahan and his son, Kyle Shanahan, the offensive coordinator, the way they treated him when he was on the team. I think they absolutely short-circuited what could have been a very promising career. It's what the Washington franchise does. And yet the idea that Robert Griffin III would be signed before Colin Kaepernick, I mean, is kind of a cosmic joke. But then again, when you talk about quarterbacks like Joe Webb, Blaine Gabbert, Matt Castle, all these folks who are going to have jobs in the 2018 season while Colin Kaepernick is on the outside looking in, again... Like with the quote from Bob McNair, it tells us all we need to know about this league and its moral compass. Well, that's all we have time for for this week. Thank you so much to the large professor, Lou Moore, for breaking down his insights about Dr. King and sports. Thank you so much to my producer, Dave Tigabu. Thank you so much to everybody out there listening. Please, if you have any suggestions of who should win the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, you can always email me, Dave Zirin, at edgeofsports at gmail.com or contact me over Twitter at edgeofsports. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you to everybody who goes to iTunes, Stitcher, and puts reviews or rates the podcast. All of that stuff helps more than you could possibly know. If people want to hear back episodes of the podcast, including our interview last week about organizing minor league baseball players with Bill Fletcher, people seem to really love that episode. Go back and listen to it for yourself if you haven't done it. Go to edgesportspodcast.com. You will thank me. For everybody out there listening, we are out of here. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace.